Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast Masterclass. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by British Rental Cart Championship. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and I'm not joined today by Spanners Ready because his house is a bit on fire, but it will be okay. Do not worry. So let's get right to it and bring in Bradley Philpot, who will be teaching us a few things about cars today. How's it going, Bradley? It's going very well. Good evening. Need to remind you, we are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. We aim to bring you a race review before Monday commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. This show is safe for work. We are keeping it clean here so you can play this with the kids, in the background, or at work. Well, shall we get right to it? Let's do it. All right. So we've had a bunch of questions from thirsty 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 patrons and i've sort of organized them by category and i'd like to start with the category entitled big picture so looking at the questions which one would you like to get to first um i actually don't have them in front of me so i'm going to completely leave it down to you i'm going to wing it all right um well let's start with question number one because i think this is like a good all-around question whether you're driving whether you're at a track whether you're going to track your car or whether you're doing project cars or something like that which is basically and i think this is true for everybody there are a lot of settings that you can play with on these cars and they can confuse especially inexperienced drivers so when you have to set up a car how do you go about setting it up in the first place and and where do you start where do you like to start where do you recommend people start Okay, so before I actually get cracking on the on the answer to that question, I just want to state up front that I'm coming at this from a driver's point of view. Um, if there are any motorsport engineers listening, I'm sorry for making you cringe throughout this podcast. Uh, I'm going to do my very best to answer in an understandable um, and accurate way based on my own experience. Um, and I also apologize to everyone else for saying it depends a lot, as we did with the driving masterclass. So. 
Um, to answer your question then, where would I start off? Well, first of all, you imagine that the vast majority of vehicles, whether you're talking about a sim racing game, um, whether you're talking about a go-kart or, or a racing car, or even a track day car, the vast majority of cars will have some kind of base setup on. You don't generally expect your vehicle to be wildly um, set up badly before you drive it. You, you'd think that some care has been taken to make sure that it's kind of normal to begin with. That doesn't mean it's set up ideally for the track you're on. So hopefully we're going to assume we're starting with a, a rough drivable baseline. You can get around the track and you're not having to change massive fundamental things straight away. Um, and then the next thing you do is just go out and drive the track. So you need to make sure that you know where you're going. Um, obviously, this whole thing is made a lot easier if you know the track already. So let's assume that in each of the examples that we use, you know where you're going and you're not, we're not taking too much of the driving side of things uh, into account. Um, so I go out and I drive and you would hopefully, if you're, if you're a half-decent driver, you get a rough idea of where you think you're losing the most time. Or at the very least, you get a rough idea of how the car feels in various types of corner. Um, and what I would personally do is work methodically through the most important thing, in my view, down to the least important thing, and just try and make the car faster. Uh, and faster could be easier to drive. You know, if it, if it is a little bit tricky to drive, you're going to be faster if you're not hanging on for dear life. Um, or it could plain be things which are were going to make you objectively faster, i.e., you know, maybe you've got too much drag on the straights and you're going to reduce that. So, so you'd highlight the area that's most important and start from there. Right. So basically what you're saying, if I could shorten your answer a bit, is it depends. Yes, it depends. Um, but I'm going to try and we'll try and drill down to some specifics as we go through this, because so, there are some areas where it doesn't depend. You know, there are some areas where there is an answer. Okay, so you, you've gone out, you've run a reconnaissance lap, and you're not quite happy with the car. Is what you choose to change first solely dependent on the outcome you're seeking? Like, if you're, if you're feeling a little bit squirrely and medium speed turns, is that going to be, I'm going to start with my suspension. If it's high speed, I'm going to start with my arrow. Or is there always an established order that the engineers and you look at things? As far as I'm concerned, there's not necessarily an established order, but in this example we're talking about, I currently have no idea what vehicle we're in. So let's pin it down to something, um, and then I'll try and give a more general overview. So are we talking about a, if we're talking about, say, a GT car um, in a racing simulator game? Like that's something that we actually can change quite a lot of the setup on relatively easily, um, versus, because I would give you a totally different answer if we're talking about a go-kart at a rental kart track, because you're very, very limited in what you can change on, a, in, on the setup there, as an example. Um, so let's talk about GT car. Um, they're in, in, a, in a simulator. You, you don't necessarily have a specific order, but there are some things which are going to affect whatever your problem happens to be more dramatically, and they're going to fix the problem more easily than others. So give me a, an example of what your handling problem is. As a driver, Matt, describe to me how your hypothetical car is handling in those medium speed corners? Well, as I get near the apex of the medium speed corner, the car starts to feel unstable to me. The rear feels like it's stepping out a little bit. Okay, so straight away, we can look at a few different things. So you've already told me it's a medium speed corner and it's towards the middle of the corner. Um, medium speed would be something where it would be useful maybe to have a look at the downforce level. So if we're in a GT car, we downforce something that's pretty quick to adjust. Uh, rear wing angle, 
whether we're talking real real life or on a simulator, it's not the longest thing to change. So that's a nice quick one that we can have a look at. Um, generally, you'd assume that the, the team have, have got a, a roughly decent setup on anyway, but be pretty quick to change it and then try it. That's the key thing. Um, I did read in our notes lots of the answers to the questions that I've read. Um, the answer was you've got to give it a go first. You can't know whether it's fixed it until you try. So that would be one port of call. Um, but there will be plenty of others as well. And we can start going down the rabbit hole of um, all the different things that it's possible to adjust on a car. So assuming that you've, you've not turned into those medium speed corners too erratically, assuming you're turning in smoothly, and so we've ruled out that it's a driving issue, we can start to look at things like the rear suspension, towing, um, maybe, maybe there might be some tow out on your car, which we'd need to rectify. Um, we're going to go into what that means in a minute. Suspension settings, how stiff the springs are. Um, anti-roll bar settings, camber, uh, all that kind of thing. So that's the kind of area I'd be looking at. And we should probably talk about what those things are. We probably should. And I got to say, just personally, it's pretty safe to assume that if I'm driving, the driving is not the problem. Okay. Yeah. So it, you are our, our ideal driving example that we're going to be using throughout tonight. And, and I like, and I just want to pick up on, generally speaking, whatever problem it is you have, you're going to go in real life, they're going to go, what's the quickest thing we can change first and change that first? Yeah, I mean, you, generally you're quite time limited in real life. Formula One is a, is a slight anom- anomaly in terms of motorsport um, because you've got a team of mechanics and you've got um, a car which is designed to have quick setup adjustments made. Um, the vast majority of racing categories that you'll encounter um, through a, a racing career it's not the work of a moment to make these major setup changes. Um, we have a luxury when we're playing racing games or, or sims that with a few clicks, and then you click go back on track and you can go and try them. So that's actually why simulators are really good for, for getting a feel for how these changes affect the car, because it is instant. If you, um, if you were driving in a real race weekend or even a, a practice day and you were coming into the pits after each run and asking your mechanics to, to change your spring rate by... Um, a small adjustment each time that's a massive job for them and um, they're not going to like you very much so you don't quite have as much luxury to try those kind of things in real life so that's why generally you would go for the big obvious things that are, are relatively easy to change that's why i went straight to wing however that wing example wouldn't be an option in some other situation so obviously if we were looking at uh, slow corners for example um, or if you told me about a different handling deficiency Right. And and you can pick one if you'd like to talk about it, or we could go on to talk a little bit about the suspension and the tires and, and how they affect the handling of the car. Yeah, let's let's talk about those. Let's talk about how each one of these things should, in theory, affect the handling of the car. And obviously, you've just mentioned tires. Um, tires are something that I, I didn't cover then, but tires would be one of the biggest things you'd be looking at straight away in most of these situations, because they're they're fundamentally important in lots of ways and also relatively easy to change. Well, let's start by asking the obvious question, which is then how do you figure out what pressure to run your tire at? And as part of that, do you always, is it always the best is the minimum recommended uh, pressure? And if not, when would you be, when would you change it or run them at a higher pressure than the, than the minimum? Okay, so this is a reasonably deep subject, so please cut me off if I'm going on for too long um, or if we're going into too much detail, but um, you'll start with a recommended pressure from the manufacturer for that car. Um, When I'm racing in in my series out in Germany, 
um, the tyre manufacturer, um, whether that's Hankook that we had this year, Michelin next year, they have engineers in the paddock and they give you, as I'm sure Pirelli do with Formula One teams, a recommended pressure. Now, you mentioned, do you always go for the the minimum um, allowed? Not necessarily. Uh, in Formula One, with the the kind of profile of the tyres, how how high profile they are, I think it's a, it's a more important um, part of the car. In lots of motorsport, you wouldn't necessarily go to the lowest um, possible pressure. There's lots of things you take into account. You know, you might be in a series where those tyres have to last a whole race. Maybe you, you're not allowed to change like you would in Formula One. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily want them that soft. It might just be that the car isn't as fast when you run them that soft. There might be a, a more ideal pressure that is higher than that. So you'd start with the, the pressure that the manufacturer recommends, and then you'd go and drive, as is the case with most of the things we're talking about. You go and try it. You go and test, see, what, see how the car drives. Um, and based on the feedback of the driver, or, or if you're the one doing it, um, based on, on your feelings, um, you'd start to look at either increasing or decreasing the pressure. Now, there could be a couple of things that you want to achieve. It could be that you're handling deficiency, whether that's oversteer or understeer. Your, your lack of grip on any given tyre could be caused by the fact that you need a larger contact patch. So maybe the, the pressure you're running is meaning that you're not having the full benefit of having all of the tyre on the track. You know, it's curved up slightly at the edges um, by having slightly too much pressure. That could be the case, in which case you'd want to lower the pressure slightly. Um, you could tell that by by looking at the tyre. You know, you can physically take the tyres off after each run and have a look at which part of the tyre is being worn. You could use temperature sensors and, and kind of put them across the tyre, you know, physically dig in the little um, needle into the tyre and, and or even use a laser and work out which parts of the tyre were getting hot. However, you could have completely the opposite change for a similar feeling handling deficiency. It might be that the contact patch is absolutely fine and it's just that you're not getting this particular compound of tyre up to temperature properly, in which case it may be that if it's, if it's the tread that needs more temperature, um, maybe you actually increase the pressures. So you actually have a smaller contact patch, but you're working that contact patch harder. It's doing more of the work. It's going to get hotter. So although there's less tyre touching the floor, um, it, it might actually benefit you because the compound is working. But all these things are going to be dependent on lots of factors. What car you're running, what the rest of the setup is, how cold the temperatures are outside. There are, as with everything we're talking about tonight, you're talking about a very complex interconnected set of variables and each one can, can affect all of the others. Um, so you wouldn't generally treat all of these things necessarily in isolation. But that's, that's a rough overview of tyre pressures. So the answer is you, you settle upon a tyre pressure which makes you the fastest. Unless that, that fastest tyre pressure, for example, in a race, is meaning that you're, you wear the tyres out too quickly in which case you'd adjust them accordingly. So the answer is it depends, um, but there is obviously a, a slightly structured way you go about working out what the actual answer for you and your car is. Right. So I do have a quick follow-up question to that, which is uh, in general, in general is a relationship that if your tires are wearing too quickly, you were going to put more pressure into them? Yes, um, unless it was a particular part, say it was just the center of the tread. Maybe you had like a, a, a kind of rib down the center of the tread that was wearing out too fast, then maybe you'd start thinking, I've, I've overinflated these. I'm only running on a very narrow part of the tire. Um, but yeah, generally, if you're, if you're wearing out too fast, the tire is probably moving around too much. It's generating too much heat in the whole carcass of the tire. Um, and then, yeah, you'd normally put a little bit more pressure in. Right. And uh, along the way, the chat room would like to know, does increasing pressure always increase tire temperature? Oh, see, this is also, this is really, it depends. Because it, it will increase 
temperature in different parts of the tire. Um, if you lower the pressure, you're going to have more movement in the sidewall. So it could be that different parts of the tire, certainly the sidewall, if you were to lower the pressure, will get a lot hotter than they would do at a higher pressure. Obviously, we, we know that um, pressure increases with temperature. Um, and so if you put more pressure in, you're going to assume that that's also going to kind of spiral with the temperature. Um, it's just not always the case. It's, it's tire pressures and temperatures are a real dark art. I nearly said black art then, but that would have been too much of a pun. Um, the answer is you would, you would make a small adjustment and try it and then make another small adjustment and try it. And eventually you find the, the kind of buffers at either end of the scale that you know it's definitely not working at. And then you work within the range that you know is, is actually working. That's absolutely brilliant. Now, the thing we hear about most when we, when we watch Formula One is that the tires are either blistering or that they are graining. And am I understanding it correctly that if the tires are graining, that the carcass is hot, but the tread is cold, and that's when you get that condition, and that the opposite is true when they're blistering, that the tread is too hot, and that's where the blisters come from, but the carcass yeah, might I, be at an okay temperature? I think, um, I think as a general rule, that's, that's a really good description. Um, I'd go as far as to say, though, it's, you're going to have different reactions with different types of tire, and obviously there's, there's so many thousands of different types of tire that you might be driving on in a track that um, they're not all going to react in the same way. Blistering... And to a lesser extent, graining, they're not things that you experience too much of the time. They're, they're very obvious in Formula One, but you've, in Formula One, you've got quite high degradation, very, very fast cars, everything's at a very high temperature, and you, you know, you're in a car that you can actually see the tyre. So I think it's more of an obvious problem in F1. But yeah, certainly graining, you get that in a lot, of, a lot of cars. Blistering is not normally something you'd encounter. And if we're talking about, I mean, part of this podcast was to help people with their sims and their race games at home. Not generally a thing you, although you get some pretty decent tire models in some of the sims, um, graining and blistering isn't really a thing that's ever taken into account. I think the most damage that you're going to see to a tire in a, in a race sim is going to be maybe a, a flat spot from a lockup. Um, and I'd also like to say that all of the things I've just said about tires, they don't necessarily work in various sims and games it all depends on how accurate their tire model is um what they've chosen to model but certainly try some of those things i know in some some sims i've driven um increasing your tire pressures will make the tire last longer and they almost don't they don't take into account any of the extra detail that we just spoke about if you want less tire wear you run the tire pressures higher obviously that comes at a price in terms of grip though so uh the other thing that can affect the tires very much would be the basic suspension settings which are toe, uh, camber, and caster. So could you moderately quickly tell us wh what each of those are and what you use them to achieve generally yes. and, and how that might then affect the tires that we're already talking about? Because then we're giving a, a great picture of just how complex and interconnected all of these systems really are. Yeah, um, and thanks for phrasing the question like that because I will, I will try not to go into too much detail about any of these. Um, particularly caster. We yes, don't really like to talk about that. Yeah. Um, okay, so toe. Um, I noticed in our show notes, we spoke. Uh, it mentioned toe in, but you have obviously toe in and toe out. What we're talking about effectively is the, I'm going to try and word this in a way which is understandable. Toe out is when the leading edge of the front tires, or sorry, of, of the tires, whether we're talking about front or rear. So the leading edge of the tires are further away from each other than the trailing edge. So 
effectively, if I was to, I'm going to show you on the video, for those who aren't watching the video, I'll try and describe what I'm doing. Toe out would be the front tires facing away from each other. Neutral would be, or I guess neutral toe, we call it. The front tires are both pointing straight ahead. And the more toe out you have, the further outwards they're pointing. It's as simple as that. And toe in is obviously the opposite of that, where they're turning inwards towards each other. And that could be on the front or the rear axle. You could have toe in or toe out on, on either the front or the rear axle. The reason you would have either of those things is because the direction those wheels are pointing affects the handling in quite a significant way. So it, as a general rule, if you want the car to turn into a corner better, if you want to have a more positive front end, you would increase toe out. It's quite rare to have toe in on the front end, in my experience. Um, however, conversely, on the rear axle, you would tend to have a little bit of toe in. You wouldn't normally have toe out. And that's because when the wheels are facing towards each other, when the leading edge, the front of the wheels are facing towards each other, um, that causes the car to want to carry on in a straight line. So if you were to let go of the steering wheel and you had both axles towed in, the car would tend to run very straight, very true. It doesn't want to deviate from that straight line which is going to cause you understeer effectively. So if you're trying to avoid understeer, if you've already got understeer, you want to tow out the front wheels and you want to run with as little rear toe in as possible. That would be your ideal balance. The problem is once you start, because then the next logical step would be to say, well, I really want it to turn in well, so why don't I put toe out on the rear as well? And what you tend to find happens there is you'll make the rear very unstable. Um, it's difficult to describe this without visually demonstrating it with, with a model, but if you imagine both rear tires are facing in opposite directions, when you turn into a corner, um, the tire on the outside wants to go away from the direction that you're actually turning the car. Um, it, it wants to, it wants to overtake you. It's a, it's basically like putting. It almost feels like putting shopping trolley wheels on the rear. Um, they just, it kind of wants to overtake the front. It just makes it unstable and not good on the straights. Uh, and, and and kind of in the same vein, you don't normally have toe in on the front because it makes it too understeery. So that's why we normally run with either neutral and neutral, or more often than not, a little bit of toe out on the front, a little bit of toe in on the rear. Um, and if you want the car to turn in better, if you want more positive front end, you generally start one of your options in amongst all these things we're talking about tonight. One of your options would be to just slightly increase the front toe out. But as with all these things, again, you're going to get to a point where it stops working. It, it makes it either too much, you've gone too far, or it just stops having any effect at all you know, you've kind of saturated how, how much difference it makes. So that's toe in and toe out. And we talked, you mentioned camber next, I think. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So most people probably know what we're talking about when we, when we talk about camber. Um, it is, uh, what's the best way to describe it? It's when the, the top, so negative camber would be when the top of the wheel and tire assembly are facing inwards towards the center of the car. So effectively, the inside edge of the tire is the part that's touching the floor when the car is stationary. Um, and positive camber, which is quite unusual in most circuit racing, um, would be the opposite. When the top of the tire is further away from the body of the car than the bottom of the tire. Um, hopefully that makes sense so far. Everyone can visualize that. Negative camber is what you'd see a race car generally running. It only starts to get weird and wonderful and wacky when we start to talk about ovals, um, where the car, the, the camber they use is, is obviously very specific to, to the, the angle of the track. So the reason you have camber, are you okay for me to carry on? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I think the next step is, okay, so, so normally we see negative camber on, on wheels on race cars. Why is that? What benefit does it provide? And, and what would be the rare circumstance that would cause you to, to run it with positive camber? 
Um, in general, really, you wouldn't ever run positive camber. Um, I can't think of an example where you ever would, except on an oval, um, where you're effectively trying to match the angle of the track um, with your car. You're only turning in one direction. You've got a very severe ang- slope to the track, very severe angle to the track. So you're effectively trying to keep as much of the contact patch uh, of the tyre on the track um, at any given time. And because you're only turning in one direction, that allows you to run positive camber on on one side of the car, effectively. Uh, on a circuit, on a normal circuit, where you've got both directions that you're turning, that's not an option. Um, and normally they're a lot flatter than that anyway. So you'd run with negative camber. And that is obviously so that during the cornering phase, the tyre, most of the contact patch is being used because you're going to lean over onto the rest of the tyre. You don't really need much grip on the straights. So it doesn't matter if you're just running on the inside edge. When you're in the corners, that's when you need the grip. And so by having negative camber, you're leaning onto the outside tyre and you're using um, as much of the contact patch as possible. Simple as that, hopefully. Uh, well, it, actually, it is. It's, it's, it actually, I think it explains it uh, rather brilliantly, but then that could just be me being a good host. Uh, we didn't talk about the anti-roll bar and the springs uh, before we move on and talk about sort of the, the other settings on the car. Uh, do, you, do you have any, is, that's just specific to where you are? Um, I mean, everything is pretty specific to where you are and, and what kind of car you're driving um, or cart or simulated car. But the suspension, it, you know, all elements of the suspension, and it's obviously very complex, more, more complex than I could even go into. It's a, a lot of suspension is beyond my understanding. When we start getting into the weight of the shock oil um, and all the, the intricacies of the inside of the dampers, um, obviously it's, it's really complex. But um, in general, we, your anti-roll bars will stop the car having so much body roll. You know, stiffer anti-roll bar will mean that the car won't roll over over its center point in a corner. And that's desirable for a number of reasons. You're keeping both tires on the floor. You're kind of maintaining a relatively constant weight over um, the inside and the outer tire. Anti-roll bar is a relatively quick thing to change as well. Certainly in terms of removing it or, or loosening it right off, changing the stiffness of it is a little bit more involved because you've you've got to physically take a thing out of the car but still one of the easier things to change we've we've not really gone into why you would want a stiff um axle or a a softer axle so we'll talk about that in a moment your spring stiffness the actual you know the spring rate of each spring on each uh, of the four corners on the car similar thing um but also a little bit more involved in how the car reacts over bumps so one of the questions I noticed on our on our pre-race notes, apologies if you're about to ask me it anyway, was about how you would make a car ride better over curbs and bumps. Let's go um, there. And you've, you've got a few different options there. Um, you could you could soften the springs themselves. Obviously, we know that you don't really want a particularly soft car um, if you're going through fast corners. So each one of these things you change to to try and improve one area could have a detrimental fe- effect on another area. So say our predominant problem is that the car is too skittish over bumps and curbs. It, we're, not, we're not able to put the power down because the car's bouncing or maybe it just feels unstable over the bumps through the middle of a corner. We'd start to soften things off. You could, you could soften the springs themselves off. Easier than that is normally to, to reduce the, the stiffness of the, the shock itself with your bump and rebound settings. Um, we probably don't want to delve too deeply into that, but essentially you normally have a couple of different settings that allow the shock to to move more quickly or more slowly is it's pretty much as simple as that if you you have a shock that um is able to um, retract into itself 
more quickly. It's going to absorb a bump uh, more readily. That might also make the car slightly more sluggish when you make a turn into a corner, for example. When you when, say when you turn quickly into a right-hander, if you've got if your bump settings are too soft, it might be brilliant over the bumps, but it might not respond to direction change as well. So this is another thing that you'd in a simulator, for example, you'd, you'd try. You'd just tweak this, give it a try, see how the car feels, provided you can drive consistently enough to to notice a difference in when you've changed something small like that. Um, then you're going to gradually arrive at the best setting. Anyway, so that's a very, very brief, super brief rundown on some of the things you might want to change on your shocks um, and your, your anti-roll bar. But as with all these things, without having a spe- very specific example of a particular handling deficiency, it's difficult to, to give an answer on what the best course of action would be. Well, and that's understandable. And, and maybe, maybe we can game out a couple uh, once we get to sort of the basic car. Now, we had an excellent question from Nick Alexander. He wanted to know about gear ratios. How do you choose them? How do they work? And to, to my understanding, it's tied into um, are, are we wanting to choose acceleration or, or top speed as, as sort of our focus? And is there an easy way when you look at a circuit to know ahead of time which one you're likely to, to want to lean towards? Okay, so I'll try and answer that last part first. Normally, um, you're not arriving at a circuit that's totally new to you. Normally, you'd have a rough idea what kind of track. You know, we all know if you go to Monaco, it's not got particularly high speeds and there's a lot of acceleration focus. If you go to Monza, you're going to need real high top speed. So, I mean, as a general rule, you'd have a, a bit of an idea where you're going. But let's just say you you didn't know. Uh, maybe you're driving on a, a sim game or maybe you're driving in real life in, in a race series and you happen to be in a championship where you were able to change the gear ratios because that's normally not the case. Um, it's only in in games, simulations, and things like Formula One where you actually have a, a choice of actually changing the gear ratios and, and karting as well. Um, you, get to, you get to change your ratio there normally. And you'd, you basically, first of all, try. Um, if it's a simulator, for example, I would go out with the base setup and I'd see, are there any areas on the track where I'm getting to the rev limiter in the highest gear? And if so, how long am I on the rev limiter for? So say, for example, on the longest straight on the track, halfway up that straight, I was in sixth gear and I'm in a car with six, six gears and I'm bouncing off the rev limiter. So the car physically cannot go any faster than that. We're at, we're at the top speed it's possible to go. Uh, we and obviously it's not related to having too much drag or anything like that because we know we're on the rev limiter itself we've got no more gears straight away that would say to me i need a longer top gear now if you're in a situation where you can change the final drive um maybe on a on lots of simulators you can change all of the gear ratios at once and it changes them in proportion so you don't just have to change sixth gear you change the final drive and that will change all of the gear ratios including sixth gear and keep a nice even space between each gear if you don't have that luxury, I would start off by just changing sixth gear. And I normally, in that case, wouldn't just go straight back out and drive it because you know that your gearbox is going to sound a little bit like this. I'm now going to do a sound effect. It will sound a little bit like... And you'll be massively out of the power band when you change from fifth to sixth gear. So your aim then with changing the gear ratios and this is obviously a lot easier in a simulated environment than it would ever be in real life. Um, your next task then is to try and get more of an even space between the gears. And what your aim is, is that when you change from the previous gear into the next gear, 
the revs that you drop down to are just about in the power band for the next gear. So in my example I just gave there, say, for example, the, the power band for this particular imaginary car is between 5,000 and 7,000 revs. So that's, the, that's where most of the power is, where the peak power occurs. Um, in my example, changing from fifth to sixth would have maybe dropped me to two and a half or 3,000 revs because sixth gear is much longer than fifth. That's obviously not desirable. I would never get to my desired speed at the end of the straight because I wouldn't have very much power when I was in sixth gear. So I changed the ratio of fifth gear to be slightly longer so that when I changed from fifth into sixth, it dropped me to about um, 5,000 revs, something like that. So, uh, And then you do that for each gear before that. Uh, and that, it's as simple as that, really. It's, I say simple, not massively simple, but it's much, more, it's much easier when you've got the visual, the picture of the gear ratios and you can see how that affects um, how, how they kind of each affect each other. I'm really sorry if that didn't, if that wasn't easy to understand or digest. Um, in reality, in, in real life racing, you very rarely have the opportunity to actually change your gear ratios. And in series where you would, it would normally be your engineer doing that. And all you would say, they'd probably see it on the data before you ever did, but um, all you would say is, I'm topping out in, I'm reaching the rev limiter in, in the top gear way before the end of the straight. And then they they do something about it. But certainly in any race series I've ever been involved in, that in that is not an option except in karting. All right. So let me ask you, I, I see the chat room is just saying, oh, just change final drive. Just change final drive. First of all, what is final drive for, for people who don't know what that term means? Uh, it's just basic, basically the, the kind of final ratio. Uh, essentially, it changes all of them at the same time. Um, all of your gear ratios will, you're not just changing an individual ratio, you're changing one gear, which then affects all of the other gears. So it, it means you don't have to go through and change them each individually. It's it's something that's available in lots of race sims and race games. Um, certainly in the ones the ones I drive on, I don't tend to have to change the gears individually. But that would that that would not be something that you would have the option to do in in real life. Then, um, potentially, it would depend on depend exactly how your uh, what kind of gearbox you had and and how how adjustable your whole setup was. Um, but no, not nor- normally in most race cars, you would have to change each gear. Yeah, it's actually interesting to me to talk about this because I used to race bicycles and, and there we used gear inches when we talked about the combination of the, the front uh, chain ring and, and the rear sprocket. And, yeah. and having, seen, um, having seen a gearbox taken apart, albeit for a motorcycle and seeing how it works, it does strike me that there's more than a few similarities and and particular so like changing final drive might be just changing the how many teeth are on your front chain ring going from a, like a 52 to a 53 or from a 53 to a 55 without changing the rear sprockets that way yep. you you get a lot you all the gear inches of all the gears in the back would would change as a result of just changing that one chain ring right there yeah. that's a really good way of describing it that, that's exactly it. Well, I'm glad I could bring something to the table. Let's move on and, and talk about aero a little bit. Um, and as part of that, uh, I, and maybe this is a suspension question, uh, there were questions both about ride height and about rake. And, and obviously, uh, the rake question, I think, is more about sim driving because you don't really run rake on a, on a touring car or a sports car, do you? I mean, if we're talking about uh, an LMP1 sports car or LMP2, yes, potentially. 
or even a very aero-dependent GT3 car uh, or GTE car, but obviously to a lesser extent. But no, you're right. Rake isn't isn't something that you tend to play around with. It's more of an aero-specific thing that we talk about with um, you know really high downforce single seaters. Formula One, obviously, rake is is super important. But obviously, you do change ride height, which is effectively giving you rake. Um, you're not necessarily changing the front and rear ride height to give you that rake effect, though, that we hear about when we're talking about uh, how Red Bull have their car set up, something like that. So you, in most forms of racing, um, although funnily enough, not normally karting, uh, but most, most forms of racing, certainly sim racing, ride height is hugely important. And it's, it's actually quite a simple thing, really, to talk about. Uh, simple in, in terms of how it affects the car. If you want more grip on a given corner, lower the ride height of that corner. Um, if you're finding, uh, say, for example, you, uh, you're under, you've got too much understeer, you'd lower the front of the car. And I noticed in our show notes, um, there was a question about how you would know where to... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST start or, or how you how you arrive at your ideal ride height most of the time you want to run the car as low as it's possible to run without the car bottoming out significantly uh, it's essentially that would be the way you'd work it out having said that you can also then adjust that dependent on how the car handles so if we set the car a base um, setup where it's as low as possible so it's as far to the it's as close to the ground as we can get so we're getting maximum aero effect, lowest uh, center of gravity, but it's it's got too much oversteer, for example, we could then raise the front slightly. You know, you can then, you can take grip away effectively from from one part of the car in the same way that you can then add it. That, that, hopefully that makes sense. It's one of the more simple areas that we can look at. And it's certainly on a, on a sim game, uh, it would be one of the first things I'd change real quick and easy to do. Well, we've had a, an associated um, question since we're talking about the sims, uh, which of the PC sims uh, do you think is most true to real life? Well, I'm going to start a massive war here. If I, anything I say is going to, uh, there are going to be 
positive and negative opinions on both sides. And let so, me make it clear, this is not an endorsement. This is just your personal opinion since you actually drive an actual race car. Uh, for your purposes, which one comes closest and do you find most helpful? Okay, I'm not going to give you a straight, easy answer here. So I'm going to just... Good. um I'm going to just give you a bit more detail. R Factor 1 is a, a sim that's been around for a long time now. I think it was released in 2007. Um, and that was used and is around in a lot of places still used as the software that race teams simulators are based on. I was working at Base Performance Simulator. I think I can say this now because it's all public knowledge. Um, I was working at a place called Base Performance Simulators um, in Banbury which is where Haas F1 team are based. Um, and I was working on a track layout for Motorsport Vision for a new track there uh, building in France. And the software that we were using there with a massive, great big hydraulic rig um, and a single seater up in the air or also an Aston Martin GTE cockpit, that's using R-Factor 1. Uh, they're quite happy that that's still accurate enough to provide really good driver feedback and really good driver training. Um, however, that sim is now quite dated certainly in terms of graphics um, and in terms of the kind of updates that are available now people have stopped doing it r factor 2 came out not that long ago it's, it's quite long ago now actually but it's certainly more recent much more up to date uh, a real tire model um, where the tires are, are actually moving around whereas in that first uh, r factor one i was talking about they were essentially solid blocks that got hotter and colder um, r factor 2 is much more realistic that's starting to be taken up by more and more places i should also point out um, the R Factor Pro is another professional um, sim developer tool, um, but a lot of places I've been to just use the the commercially available one. There are also other sims which are more um, kind of home used, used by a lot more people um, at home uh, for online racing and 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 training, simulator training. That are also very very close in terms of realism, if not better in some areas. Uh, those would be Assetto Corsa or my personal favorite certainly at the moment which is iRacing but there are various uh, pros and cons to all of them but one thing I particularly like about iRacing which is like I say what I use is how uh, it's there's a lot of manufacturer tie-ins um, they work very hard on on making the cars as absolutely realistic as possible there's no no user generated content like lots of the other sims where the mods are made by people at home um, everything for iRacing is done officially, effectively. Tracks are all laser scanned, and I like that they're always getting better and better with their kind of tyre model and physics engine. But a lot of people hate iRacing, and all of these things, in order for them to feel realistic, require you to have your own sim set up in a way that feels right to you. Uh, I drove for years on on other people's iRacing setups and hated it, and now I've got mine just right, and hopefully I'll have a wheel upgrade soon as well. And if you can get lost in it, if you can drive naturally and and it feels real to you when you're driving it that's that's all you require really certainly for it to be a good driver training tool um, as long as it's one of these modern ones and we're not talking about nascar 98 then um well, that's still quite good actually uh, but yeah but anyway that's hopefully that gives a, a quite a an unbiased reflection on the sims available um there are oh, sorry i haven't mentioned project cars people are going to crucify me for not saying about project cars um, still probably not typically accepted as a full sim, but people love Project Cars, and I'm sure the PC version's great. And obviously Formula One uses its own game as the eSports game. Uh, I think on PC, actually, they use for that. So let's, let's move on and look at a, a couple of particular problems to solve. Let's say you're having persistent understeer and slow speed corners. Okay. What's, this is what, nice. We're specific already. I like it. 
yeah. So what 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 should we be looking to change? Okay, so if we're on a if we're on a sim where it's very easy to change things, you could change you could try a few things. I would be looking at front ride height. I'd lower the front slightly, essentially, so you're you're leaning more weight onto the front tires. Um, it's a slow speed corner you mentioned, so aero is not really going to have any effect. I'd be thinking about softening off the front suspension, um, whether that's anti roll bar um, or spring rate. I wouldn't be looking too much at bump and rebound if we're not talking about your use of curbs or bumps or anything. But um, so those were two things, um, and you'd be looking for, you'd be looking to increase toe out at that point on the front um, or reduce rear toe in. It might be that the rear end is so planted that it's causing you to to have this sensation of understeer where it's pushing on at the front in a in a hairpin, for example. Um, so you might look at just reducing the rear toe in, so making it more neutral without going past that into toe out. But having said that, each one of these things, you'd be well advised to do them individually. I know people don't always have the patience to do that. And in real life, you don't always have the time to do that. But to avoid getting lost and thinking something's having a certain effect that isn't, you would generally adjust one of these things at a time and then try it because you never know. It might then affect you negatively somewhere else. So in our example there, if we say the thing we chose to do was increase toe out on the front to try and get the car to turn in more positively to your theoretical slow speed corner that you might find then in some of the high speed corners later in the lap it's too oversteering so you will either then um, do try and do something about that separately so stick with the setup change you've made but try and fix that new oversteer that you've caused in a different corner or maybe you'd take away that front toe out and you maybe change something else to help you in that slow corner that then didn't have so much of an effect on the rear um, and as you can see from all of these answers i'm giving it's normally not just a simple answer. It's lots of lots of trial and error, but along relatively relatively kind of clear guidelines. So you know the kind of areas you're looking at, but it, you're kind of on your own from that point. You need to try it, see see how it affects that part of the track and other parts. Okay, so let's reverse the problem. Let's say I have the same corner, but now now I'm oversteering. Would it literally be just you would go through the same list uh, and just do the opposite, or or would there be something else that you would consider? Okay, so uh, so we're in the same corner, you say the same slow speed corner, but actually the problem now is you're getting persistent oversteer. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so things I'd be looking at would be to maybe soften the rear anti roll bar. You know, you could even potentially soften the spring rate at the back um, if you wanted. But anti-roll bar is normally a, a nice quick change to get a, a reference of whether that's going to have an effect. Um, you could lower the rear ride height if that's possible, unless you're already running at minimum at the rear. Um, you, we could even start looking at tyre pressures. We could even start maybe, you know, adjusting these. Because we've already mentioned that you don't know whether you're going up or down. But I'd say if you want more grip in a low-speed corner, you generally want a, a more of a contact patch so you generally take a little bit of pressure out or you could do any of the opposite things to that at the front end of the car because maybe it's doing the turning in too well rather than the rear not gripping enough i'm, I'm always a fan of of improving one axle or the other rather than taking grip away from one of the other axles but sometimes you don't have a choice sometimes you run out of options and it is just that in this particular situation you've just got too much front grip and in order to go faster over the lap, you need a better balance and you would just balance that up a bit, take some away. Certainly in karting, that happens a lot. Right. Okay. So, and so now, I, now, now I'm intrigued. So whenever you have a problem with a corner, uh, do you prefer to focus on the front axle or the rear axle as the solution? 
Oh, it depends. It depends where the problem is happening. Um, so generally, you think of so if I understand the question right, you said if you've got a particular problem, which axle would you focus on? Yeah, like like we so, we discussed the slow speed corner, and and you talked about changes at the rear or do the opposite at the front because maybe you're you've got too much your 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 front is turning in too well. Yeah, and so, and the rear can't keep up with it. So so then I'm wondering, is, is there is as a driver or or from what you have learned driving. Is it a thing where normally it'll be the front axle or the rear axle that people like to start with first? Okay, so so normally if you're getting understeer, you would start with the front axle. If you're getting oversteer, you start with the rear axle. It, you're you're basically going to try and cure the bit that is sliding. Um, it, that's it's only after you've exhausted those options um, and you still can't seem to get anywhere that you maybe start thinking about maybe the balance is just too far off in general. Maybe I've gone just too far on the other axle and I need to just reduce that slightly. Uh, but yeah, in general, you if you're sliding at the rear, you try and fix the rear. If you're sliding at the front, you try and fix the front. Yeah, now see, this is a kind of brilliant content that will help gamers everywhere get even more confused with their setup. <laughs> um, I have noticed a couple of comments. I think I'm only glancing at them briefly because um, I've got a very, very small screen on my phone. But um, men- people mentioning what they would do. And I would say that absolutely, in, in certainly in lots of Sims, I've noticed the the thing that I would do in real life isn't necessarily what the correct thing to do in in that sim is. I've recently joined a team um, called Evolution Racing Team on iRacing, um, and and before anyone who knows iRacing gets too excited, I'm nowhere near as good as those guys on iRacing on the vast majority of the the race series they do. But for VLN, which is obviously my specialty on the Nordschleifer, um, I'm reasonably good and they've sent me some of their setups and some of the things they do. And these, this is one of the best teams there is in iRacing. Some of the things they do, I would never have considered. So just because a thing like I've been speaking about this evening, just because a setup adjustment might seem like the right thing to do in the vast majority of cases, doesn't always translate into Sims. Sometimes there are faster setups, faster and in inverted commas, um, faster, quicker on the Sim that aren't, actually exactly what you'd want to do in real life but you know you do whatever's fastest the things i've been talking about are things which should translate most of the time into sims and all of the time in real life excellent well uh, at the risk of losing all of our viewers according to spanners uh let let's swing on to tires and and talk about some particular tire problems that people might have uh, and the first and foremost is they're wearing out too soon okay um normally you'd say first thing is driver related because the driver has ultimate control over how much wheel spin they're generating. If you're talking about the driven axle um, wearing out too soon, if that's for me, that's normally the front wheels. Uh, obviously in Formula One, it's the rear wheels. The driver has ultimate control over that. that that's the f- most fundamental thing. However, obviously there are things you can do within the setup to try and limit that. Um, so first thing would be to, to set the pressures correctly. Now I'm not saying higher or lower here correctly so that you're limiting the sliding um because you know if you're we mentioned earlier how would you how would you cure certain issues by raising or lowering the tire pressures where is going to be generated a lot of the time by the by the car sliding obviously if the temperature is too high that's going to contribute too but you just want to set the tire pressures correctly that'll give you the best chance but if you if you're generating quite a lot of wear um, you might also look at whether or not you've got too much toe in or toe out, uh, because obviously your tires aren't in a neutral direction. They're they're facing outwards or inwards, so they're going to effectively be scrubbing along the track. 
Um, somewhere like Monza, for example, I would normally on a on a sim. Uh, I don't race at Monza in in real life, but in a sim, I would certainly be trying to go to as neutral as I could get away with, um, without that overall affecting my lap time in a negative way. That's obviously going to make you quicker on the straights, but it's also going to stop you from scrubbing the tires and wearing them out. Essentially, anything that can limit sliding is going to generally help you with tire wear, help prevent tire wear. All right, uh, let's move on. And and let's, this is a classic Formula One problem. The car keeps locking up the inside front tire under heavy braking. Of and, course, we've not even mentioned brake bias. Or, or differentials, a... have we? No. Uh, differential, the vast majority of the time, you cannot change anything about your differential. It is what it is. Formula One is a real anomaly here that they can change settings. You know, you can tighten up or loosen off the, the differential. But certainly inside front brake locking, and we're not even going to go into kinetic hybrid systems, that kind of thing, because that really is um, very specific. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you're locking up the inside front wheel, you would quite simply, um, the easiest thing to do would just be to move the brake bias a little bit more rearward. Generally, that's even something that the driver can do on the move. Um, I certainly have a brake bias adjuster in the center of my car. Um, every single seater, or pretty much every single seater, will also have something next to the driver that they can twist. Um, so very, very simple to change. And and that really is something that the driver would just get a feel for. Uh, most most sim games or sims or race games, you can also set a you know a hotkey to adjust your brake bias, um, maybe on the steering wheel. And yeah, if you're if you're using your normal brake pressure. As you arrive at the corner, you lock the inside front wheel, maybe as you're just trailing the brakes into the corner. That would suggest to me you want to go slightly more rearward on the brake bias, but you definitely want to stop at the point where the rear tires lock before the front. Um, so you'd normally you'd normally then wind it back one click towards the front at that point. All right. And if it's still locking, you need to just brake harder earlier and not be on the brakes so hard when you're turning into the corner and we start getting into driving. Indeed we do. So what would be the downside of changing that brake bias? Um, well, effectively, you you don't really have a downside because you're you're achieving better deceleration. Um, it's just that the front the front brakes obviously do the, the front tires and the front brakes do most of the deceleration because the weight because of the weight transfer. Um, you know everything's leaning towards the front when you're braking, so you do normally have the majority of the braking set to the front. I'd say in almost a hundred percent of cases, you'd have um, the higher level of brake bias at the front. Um, but obviously the stiffer the car, the less um, forward pitch there is when you brake, the more neutral the balance between front and rear brake bias becomes. But in the vast majority of cases, you have the, um, the, the real majority of braking done at the front. There's not really much of a downside to moving it backwards, except if you go too far, that in which case you're after. then going to cause rear instability. Um, and then you've got a car which starts acting like a go-kart under braking where the rear locks and... Um, it's not ideal because you're then having to deal with an additional handling problem at that point. So yeah, that's why you need to find a good balance with that. And that's why you've got an adjuster in the car because it's so important. Right. And a follow-up question from the chat room is, do you adjust brake bias in the braking zone or do you do it after the corner? Uh, No, you you wouldn't normally adjust brake bias whilst you were doing the braking. You would would drive, see what was wrong. And in between, uh, hopefully if you've got enough time and you've got enough mental capacity, you change the brake bias on your way to the next corner. So on a straight, well before a braking zone. Um, you wouldn't ever be changing brake bias whilst you're putting pressure into the brake system. And now uh, to go to the outside tires. Um, generally, the outside tires on a corner will, will get hotter quicker. 
and wear more quickly as a result. So say for a clockwise circuit, the left side would generate more heat and more wear. Uh, what sort of settings might you run to counteract this? And are there yeah. any um, driving style tips that you might give to also help with that? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because um, a lot of the time when we're setting tire pressures, we tend to, people will either set all four tires roughly the same, um, or they'd set certain pressure for the front and then a certain pressure for the rear. But actually, it, normally, uh, professional teams would, would set each um, corner of the car independently. So the way you would go about making sure that you didn't have excessive temperature and therefore excessive wear on, in this example, on the outside, on, on the left side of the car, um, you would do a test run and then immediately have an engineer check the tire pressures when you come back into the pits. And then you would set each tire pressure to the, the correct pressure that you've agreed upon earlier. You know, we mentioned whether an engineer gives you the base uh, pressures that you're after um, or whether you've decided upon what works best for your car at, uh, you know, during the rest of this test or at a previous day. And you set each tire to that pressure. Now, what that means is once they all cool down, they're all going to be at different pressures. They're not all going to be the uniform pressure they began with. But when they heat up again, due to the nature of the track, you'd expect them all to raise to the same pressure, which is the ideal pressure. Um, and therefore, you're not getting overheating. Um, if, for example, you set all the tire pressures to 30 PSI, just as an example, um, you did a test run on this clockwise track and you came back in and the left tires were all 55 and the rights were 37. Um, you wouldn't leave it like that. You'd adjust them all back down to 30 if that was your desired pressure. And then obviously, like I was saying, when they all go cold, your left tires are going to have much less pressure. But the idea is when they're up to racing temperature or qualifying temperature, they're correct. That, and that's the key. That's how you would limit that. And you asked me about driving, uh, things you'd change about your driving to try and limit that tire wear. Um, it's probably obvious to, to most people listening. So um, without wanting to teach people how to suck eggs, you'd limit the wheel spin. So you'd just be as smooth as possible getting on the power. That's whether it's front wheel drive or rear wheel drive. Um, and you'd make your steering inputs as smooth as possible. You'd try and avoid any kind of scrub. If you're limited by tire wear, you want to definitely make sure you're not going into the corners too fast and you're not scrubbing the fronts and you want to definitely make sure you're not accelerating too hard or early on the exit. So you just make sure you're being as smooth as possible. That's how you're going to keep the tire temperature under control. It's actually an issue we have in particular uh, on our race car. Being front wheel drive, everything's happening at the front, lots and lots of power, steering and accelerating and braking all happening on the same axle. So um, front tires overheat very easily. Well, that kind of brings up the next question beautifully, which is, as we know, the Nordschleife has 160 corners and also some really high-speed sections and some high-speed corners. So when you set up your car to drive that track, what are the kinds of compromises you make and, and how do you set it up uh, to achieve optimum lap time? Yeah, Nordschleife has massive compromises because, as you say, there's so many different types of corner. You're never going to have a car that's ideal in all of them. You've got one of the longest straights in the world. You've got some of the tightest corners on any racetrack in the world um, and everything in between. And so essentially, you don't have a, you know, a low speed setup or a high speed setup or, a, or a, even a massively soft setup. Although people tend to think that on the Nordschleife, you run very soft. You do within reason, but you've also got some extremely fast corners. So you basically do, you make the compromise that you need to based on the feedback from the drivers uh, one of the key things though that you can't really get away from that we've we've had big problems with this season um is the dotting of herd the long the long straight it's a good couple of kilometers long it's very hard to have gear ratios that get you to the end of that straight or near to the end of it without hitting the rev limiter 
whilst also not being too sluggish to accelerate in the rest of the track. Thankfully, it was only a problem for us in as much as it was, it was wrong, but we couldn't change it because our gear ratios were fixed. We're not allowed to change them. Um, but in an ideal world, we would have lengthened our sixth gear um, and just and the compromise around the rest of the track wouldn't have been enough for that to have negatively impacted the lap time. We would have only gained because you're not in sixth gear too much of the time. So by having a slightly longer sixth gear in that one section of the track would have only really helped us. Um, but yeah, it's it's massive compromise there. And especially with how big the curbs are, that's probably something that's uh, the most unusual compared to other tracks. It's not actually as bumpy as people think. Most of the track's relatively smooth, but the curbs are enormous. So you have to have a lot of suspension travel. You also have to run the car much higher off the floor. They look a bit more like a rally car um, when you see cars that race at the Nordschleife because you need that room under the wheel arch for the, the wheel to be able to disappear up into without you just bouncing off into oblivion. So yeah, real, real tricky compromise there. Right. And uh, someone has asked, do you ever have to do anything to avoid taking off at the three jumps? No, you want to take off with the three jumps. Otherwise, you're, you're not going fast enough. Uh, and actually, I'll be completely honest. Uh, Flugplatz is no longer really a jump since they shaved the, um, the edge of that off. Um, so uh, we never really jumped in our car anyway. It's only really the GT3s that got air there. So that's not really a problem. Um, and then you have Flansgarten 1 and 2. Flansgarten 1 is definitely still a jump um, because the track just disappears from underneath you. So you can't really help but jump there. Uh, Flansgarten 2 um, or Sprung, Sprunghugel. Um, that's really, once again, only a real jump for the, the very fastest cars. Um, but our front wheels come off the floor. Um, but no, you, there's nothing you do to avoid jumping because you want to jump. You, you, you obviously don't want to just be in the air forever, but you, you don't really have that option. You, you fly for a very short period of time. And if you jump, that means you've gone over fast enough. We have a few more questions. We're almost at an hour, though. We're actually exactly at an hour. So let's look at the let's look at one more question to to get us out of here. And we've talked about and, your and setup. apologies apologies to everyone if we haven't covered something that um, that you've specifically asked or were expecting to hear answered. Feel free to message me, tweet me, or Facebook message me or whatever, and I'll, I'll do my very best, um, or at least put you onto someone who's better a uh, better authority than me. Let's see. We have a uh, right balance between top speed and downforce. Um, we have uh, for for Le Mans, how how might you set it up? But that seems like it might be similar to the same kind of compromises you'd have at the Nordschleife. So I'm going to skip that one. Yeah, some tracks obviously are more heavily dominated by one factor or, or the other. Le Mans has some relatively slow corners, but the vast majority of the track is super high speed. Um, so. I think, as far as I'm aware, they run pretty low downforce. I know the Porsche curves um, require a bit of downforce, but you're on the long straights for a lot longer than you're on the Porsche curves. So i say probably very low downforce at Le Mans. Right. Um, uh, someone, someone's mentioned, uh, I think it's Aidan Johnson in the, the chat, um, isn't the first jump at the start of the braking zone. Um, so I believe he's talking about Flansgarten 1, um, which, which nowadays is the first jump. And it's kind of in the middle of a braking zone, really, um, which means you've got two choices. You either brake before you go over um, or you brake when you land. Generally, it's kind of a bit of both. Um, but what you've got to try and avoid doing, if you're in a car with ABS, which I didn't have that problem this year because we didn't have ABS, you've got to avoid confusing the car by being on the brakes when the car takes off and then the wheels sense that you're in midair, but they don't know that. All they sense is that they're locked because they're not touching the floor. Um, and then it obviously tries to release you know how abs works it kind of pulses it releases and applies the brakes over and over and it means when you land 
the car is already doing this kind of pulsing so you don't get the initial bite from the brakes that you're expecting when you land and you can go in the gravel so uh, there you go there's a top tip for anyone driving their own car around the Nordschleifer um, release the brakes as you take off over Flansgarten okay so let, let's finish this up with nothing better than tires and now now uh, in your series do you run uh, soft and hard compounds of tires do you have different compounds to choose from there are um, although nobody runs everybody runs the same basically everybody runs medium um, because you uh, we don't even change for qualifying to be honest um, and partly that's due to cost uh, but partly that's because there's not really enough of a difference between the compounds to warrant changing partly it's because qualifying doesn't matter as much as it does in some other series when you've got a four or six hour race um, it's quite a lot of hassle to go to for just a, what might not be any grid positions um, and also the soft tires with such a long lap the soft tires are probably overheating by the time you get two-thirds of the way around the lap. It's like doing three or four laps on a normal track. Sorry, I've gone off way too long before you've even asked, asked your question. No, uh, that, that was pretty much the question. They just wanted, they wanted to know about setup changes between soft and hard, but you don't, um, you don't necessarily run different compounds. So We don't. Um, obviously, I can comment on another series. That but was, well, go ahead then. You adjust the setup based on what is happening at the time. Um, you know, if you're, if you're able to change setup between qualifying and a race, for example, I know this isn't, isn't necessarily the case in something like formula one. Um, but you would just, you kind of deal with what you've got. So if the car's behaving a certain way on soft tires, then you'd adjust the setup accordingly. And then when you change to hard tires, hopefully you've got enough information that you know how it's going to change and you'd already have prepared the setup changes, but it's just the same as imagine you don't know whether they're hard or soft just deal with do i have understeer in the slow corners fast corners medium corners oversteer you know you you deal with whatever the handling imbalance is and adjust things accordingly all the things we've been talking about tonight so you essentially ignore whether they're soft or hard and deal with how they make the car respond well i'm going to ask now is there anything that you wanted to get to that we somehow managed to miss um i don't know really there's so much the one thing i wanted to just make sure was clear was just how complex everything is in the way it interacts with other things and that despite how frustrating it is there's not always one easy answer it might be a case that the best solution to whatever problem you've got is lots and lots and lots of small changes to lots of different areas on the car what limits you is as we mentioned earlier on you don't always have the luxury of changing those things um you might not be in a sim or you might be in a sim where the setup is restricted. I know iRacing, for example, restricts you to the kind of things that you would be able to realistically change if you were really racing this car. Um, and some some sim series or games actually have fixed setups just to stop you from spending loads of time doing that. Or it could be like me or lots of other race series where it's actually just physically impossible in the time given to change these things. Or you don't have infinite types of springs in your garage. But anyway, if you do have that luxury... There are so many things to change and they all affect various other things. And that's not isolated to the one corner that you're talking about. They're going to change things all around the track. So um, a lot of trial and errors involved. And you, the only real help that you get uh, is through more experience. You tend to home in on the, the correct solutions or the, the more effective solutions just slightly more quickly. But it's all still, there's no substitute for trying it, seeing how it affects the car. Well, I got to say at this point, Thank you so much for joining us for what has to be a, uh, what was you know, a really fascinating look at how to, how to get the most out of your car uh, if you're if if you're going to be racing it or if you're going to be on a sim somewhere. 
I am, I'm thinking this will help a lot of people out tremendously. So I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thank you very much for having me, as always. And apologies that it's such a, a massive scattergun of varied parts of the same topic. Because, of course, everything is interconnected. Um, and apologies, too, for the lack of a spanners. There I thought was... it was better. Didn't you think it was better? Well, yeah, but I'm not going to say that out loud because then okay. it will hurt his feelings. Um, anyway. We love you, spanners. And I hope your house isn't on fire anymore. Yes. I, the last thing I saw in the chat was that, that he was losing power. So I don't know if that meant he was out of battery or who knows? Who knows? I'm sure he will eventually message us and fill us in. But I think he is fine, everybody. No need to worry about spanners. So where can people find you, Bradley? What are you plugging now? Oh, yeah. That's very kind of you to, to tell people. Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Bradley Philpot. You can find me on YouTube. Uh, my channel is BradDude2K. Or just search for my name. And Facebook, uh, Bradley Philpot Motorsport. Look me up and click like and join and stuff and subscribe. Just tipped over. I'm just barely trying to keep in front of Missed Apex in terms of YouTube subscribers. So help me out. Uh-oh, we have a race. This will be fun. I think you're definitely going to beat me at that one. Ah, well. we'll but, but with your own help, to be fair. And as for me, I'm Matt Trumpets. You can find me at MattPT55 on the Twitters. And if you've been missing yourself a Spanners, just follow BRKC on YouTube. That's right. He will be the intrepid pit lane reporter for the British Rental Cart Championships live this 20th and 21st of January. There may even still be spots available, so feel free to reach out to Bradley Philpot and inquire if you are interested. It's also a qualifying event for the World Rental Car Championship, so don't miss your chance to be covered in glory. Or something. This has been Missed Apex Podcast. Remember, wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory last forever. Um, I realize we forgot to do comment of the week. Oh, okay. Uh, What's so, comment of the week? So, comment of the week is you know where we pick out the best. I don't know. I know. I know what it is. I just didn't know which one it's going to be. <laughs> I don't know. You want to look through and pick one? I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking right all now. All right. I'll, although I'm tempted right. to pick Evangelos here at the end. He says, "Quote: If all wheels touch the tarmac, you're not going fast enough." That's that's pretty good. I like that too. I like the most real sim I've ever driven was Burnout Three. That's quite good. <laughs> um, still on tires. Um, yeah, I think maybe the one you just said. But doesn't Evangelos win it all the time? He does. But but hey, if you're good, you're good. This this might yeah. be it. We might have to make you an emeritus winner. But this week's comment of the week goes to Evangelos Heteroclitus. If all wheels touch the tarmac, you're not going fast enough. Comment of the week. All right. Well, uh, look at this. Uh, we have a listener who is thinking about renting a car at the Nürburgring. Any advice on good and cheap yeah um the suzuki swift from rent for ring i think it's called that's the in my opinion the best beginner's car to rent cheapest they really know what they're doing everything will be handled for you uh good car to drive you won't be going crazy fast but you'll really enjoy the drive so yeah suzuki swift um they've got various stages they call it they've tuned them to various levels so you can even pick a faster one or a slower one um, and rent for ring are based just at the foot of the castle. So as you go through Nurburg Village, they are one of the last shops you get to before you start going up the steep hill towards the castle. 
Well, he's going to be happy to get that advice. And I, I'm, I'm thinking that probably, you know, based on my own observation of watching <laughs> people make mistakes, uh, that probably having a car that's not too, too fast is a good idea if you haven't had a fairly decent amount of experience driving around it. Yeah. The the key thing is you could go around in, in a, you know, a Vauxhall Corsa one liter for your first go, and it would still feel really intimidating and daunting. So before anyone goes out in a f- actual fast car i would strongly advise learning the track really well if, if they drive on sims and and they've learned the layout that's great but i'd still advise doing quite a few real world laps just to get a feel for the elevation change and, and even then you know things can happen you could be the best driver in the world and someone just in front of you could have dropped oil and there's nothing you've done wrong but you're going to end up in the wall potentially in a air ambulance so just be careful but yeah um rent for ring a good company there's a few others as well once you're in the village in fact, one called Apex, I believe, is quite a new one, opposite Rent for Ring. So Ooh, say cool. my name, and then they'll like me. Absolutely. Apex, huh? Say Bradley. Yeah, that's name. what they're called. I think okay. they're called Apex. Excellent. Well, maybe, um, maybe. Ask for Boosted Boris. Boosted Boris. Well, maybe, maybe we should give uh, Boosted Boris a call and see if he wants to sponsor a show or two. You'll find him on Facebook, for sure. He's a crazy Russian guy. Can't <laughs> drive for toffee. <laughs> Evangelist. Are there any repair shops around? Around there it seems a like lot. a good yeah, business idea. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have more than enough for a show. One thing I forgot to mention at the start, Matt, yeah, was an additional apology. Looking, as is the case, like I got up at four o'clock this morning and then just got in the house not long before this broadcast and have been flat out all day and I'm knackered. So if if I had any brain farts or answered a question you didn't ask or went off on too much of a tangent, I'm really sorry. No, no. I mean, you you were remarkably cogent. And and frankly, it, it was not obvious to me, although I, I know the kind of day that you had. It, it wasn't really obvious to me that you were you, that, you were that tired. Although now, now you're looking a little worn out. I'm also pasty from not having had any sun for a week in uh, Sweden where we get like two hours uh, of daylight. And it's nothing to do with the large quantity of alcohol you consumed up there. And that. It? And that, yeah. that makes a difference. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all 
small body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.